This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Thanks uh, for coming today to this uh, talk. I'd like to welcome you here on behalf of the Center for Biomedical Ethics at Stanford and also the Center for Integration of Research on Genetics and Ethics, that's SURGE, um, to this talk by Eric Turkheimer. Um, we're glad to have him back after having come here for a symposium on uh, ethical issues in behavioral genetics uh, um, in the last year. He is a professor at the University of Virginia in the Department of Psychology, as well as being the Director of Graduate Studies and of Clinical Training there. Um, I'm really pleased that you'll be here talking about your um, the gloomy prospect. Uh, and I, for one, am uh, very anxious to hear what he says with this provocative title. I know it will be good. So, Thank thanks very much. Good. It's nice to be here. And it wouldn't really be a talk without that little technical glitch to get us going there, just to give you a moment of anxiety before you get started. Uh, it's a good thing Jen had a computer, because I see mine is still down there booting. Uh, so anyway, it's very nice to be here. And I know I have too many slides, so I will dig right in. Um, and at, at the risk of being obnoxious, uh, I'd, I'd like to sort of set off my theme for today by for giving myself credit for being having been right about something. Um, this was, these were the, the first paper I ever sort of wrote referencing the whole idea of the molecular genetics of behavior. Um, in 1998, I actually written in 1996, so it's getting to be a few years ago now. Uh, I said, population-based behavioral genetics has demonstrated that genotype and behavior can be expected to co-vary. Although the epigenetic developmental pathways linking gene products to complex behavior will in general be almost unimaginably complex, modern molecular genetics has made it possible to detect small co-variations between alleles and behavior that span the complexity of the causal network. Such associations are real and potentially interesting, but they remain correlations and small ones, not evidence of substantial causal pathways between individual alleles and complex behavior, or evidence of genes for extroversion or intelligence, or evidence that future scientific efforts will be most productively applied at a genetic level of analysis. If the history of empirical psychology has taught researchers anything, it's that correlations between causally distant variables cannot be counted on to lead to coherent ideological models. Um, and I sort of allow myself to cite myself like that because I took a lot of uh, crap from my fellow behavioral geneticists for having said that at the time because it was clear to behavioral geneticists then that after a couple of generations of doing twin studies that were interesting enough but really hadn't led to coherent ideological models, now that we could actually get the DNA and measure it, surely we were on the threshold of really understanding what the genes for depression or intelligence or personality were. Um, and just sort of developing this idea and what's happened in the 10 years since then is the theme of my talk today. Of course, in those 10 years, I don't, to this audience, I don't really need to say any of this, uh, molecular genetics has come a long way from uh, linkage studies, which is what people were doing back then, which had the power to search across the entire genome, but not much statistical power, uh, to candidate gene association studies, where you could simply look for associations between individual variants and behavior, but you had to know what you were looking for when you started, to today when really we've, we've kind of reached what everybody expected molecular genetics to be in the first place with uh, GWAS, genome-wide association studies, where increasingly, and the power doubles every six months, we can simply look across the entire genome to find anything that might be associated with a behavior that we're interested in. Um, and the place I want to begin, and several people have mentioned this study to me since I've been here, so, so word is getting around. But this, this uh, series of studies, it was sort of a special issue of nature genetics. So at the very pinnacle of the publication hierarchy in genetics, um, a series of studies, each of which was actually a meta-analysis covering several studies, uh, was published about human height. Human height, obviously it's not psychology, it's not behavior, um, if you think about it, is a model trait. If, the, if molecular genetics is going to be able to teach us anything about anything, it ought to work for height. Uh, there is, in the modern world, 
uh, practically no environmental variability for height. I'll have a slide about that in a moment. Uh, there's no cultural variation, really, for height. It's not as though some cultures encourage height in their kids where others reward uh, kids being short. Um, there's near-perfect measurement of the phenotype, which is always a problem in psychiatry. It's very hard to measure depression. The reliability of the measurement of height is as close to perfect as you want to get. There's no obvious genotype by environment correlation or interaction. Uh, kids who seem to be tall are not placed in special schools that encourage more height or anything like that. Um, so, and this is the last point is the kind of thing I criticize people for saying, but just to make the point, uh, human height seems like it ought to be the kind of thing that is just the unfolding of a biological process, and we ought to be able to study how that happens. Um, interestingly, I just put that up there for historical interest, uh, height is what Francis Galton started with when he was first developing the correlation coefficient back in the 19th century. Uh, this is a, a table that somebody else adapted from Galton uh, showing the correlations of parent and child height. Uh, and in this particular paper, he was just kind of working through the mechanics of the correlation coefficient. Uh, and he showed that they were correlated 0.7. Um, the population genetics of height, that is the uh, twin studies of height, uh, show height to be as close to perfectly heritable as you would probably want to get, again, in the modern world. Uh, if you have malnourished people, there's going to be environmental variation in height. Um, and again, I'm not, I've, I've stood right here and criticized discussing extensively what the heritability of this or that trait is, and I don't want to oversell this, but identical twins anyway are almost identical for height, and they're a lot more similar for height than fraternal twins. Uh, if, if we care, height probably has a heritability between 0.8 and 0.9. Uh, the studies in Nature Genetics this year uh, across all studies involved 63,000 individuals, uh, in three separate papers, each compiled from multiple studies, uh, genome-wide association scans with very rigorous standards that I'll get into with one of the points of my talk uh, for type 1 error rate. Um, and the way studies of this kind, again, I'll have a little more to say about this, the way in general studies like this work nowadays is that you do a genome-wide scan first in order to identify a pool of possible variants that might be associated with what you're interested in. Then once you've associated that pool, you pull them out and genotype them again in an independent data set to see if they're still associated. Uh, and, you know, in studies like this, they're working at P less than 0.0007, you know, a tiny P to 10 to the minus 7th. Um, what were the results? Uh, that slide kind of reconfigured itself on the Mac. Um, there were three empirical reports, the Whedon et al., Lettre et al., and Gudbjartsen et al. And here is the bottom line uh, in the total R-squared. Remember that 90% of the variability in height is genetic. 65,000 people with full uh, genome-wide scans. They identified at this very extreme level of significance 20, 10, and 21 SNPs, of which across the three studies, eight of them replicated in two of the three studies. Only two of them replicated across all three studies. And this is the important point in the right column, the total R squared. They accounted for, respectively, 2.9%, 2% and 3.7% of the variation in height. So height is, in the old twin study sense, 90% genetic. We threw everything at it that we could possibly throw at it, and we found SNPs that accounted for under 3% of the 90% for height. Okay. Really, the talk is about what does that mean? Um, the looking to the future paragraph, I won't read it. I think what one of the things that's really interesting that is characteristic of maybe of scientific work in general, but certainly of genomic work. When I when I read, somebody called this to my attention, and I looked at it, and my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe it. It seemed like an absolute disaster to me 
for the people doing these studies that they could only explain 3% of the variation in height with all that technology. What's remarkable when you read the reports is that it is written in a tone of absolute sunny optimism. <laughs> um, that everything just came out fabulously. Uh, this is the, from the Vischer paper that is kind of the editorial that ties it all together. It says the main conclusion emerging from the current studies is that GWAS was able to robustly identify common variants that are associated with height, but that the effect sizes of individual variants are small so that very large sample sizes are needed to identify associations re reliably. So 65,000 was enough to get 3%, and Vischer quite calmly discussed, well, maybe next time we need 650,000, and then we'll get somewhere. All right? So the study, to my mind, failed. It absolutely failed. But the conclusion is, just need to do a bigger study. Now, I'm a, I'm a psychologist. Um, and in fact, I'm a fairly traditional psychologist. I study complex human behavior in families. Uh, those are things that are very, very difficult to study scientifically. And I want to back up and think about what the meaning is of these findings in the genome by backing up into the problems that are faced by social scientists doing traditional psychological behavioral work. No genome at all for a while. So the problem we want to think about is that given a variance component that indisputably accounts for a huge portion of the variance, 90% of the variation in height is genetic, can we figure out what the individual effects are that make up that 90%, the individual genes one at a time that together make up the big effect. Or looked at the other way from the point of view of the predictors rather than the outcome, given a single predictor, a single variant at a single locus, can we identify its causal consequences? Given that you have gene X, can we say what are the consequences of having it? And let's look to environmental social science for answers. What is social science? Um, there's a lot, of, lot written about the philosophy of social science that I don't know much about. Um, my, my favorite answer that I'm not actually going to work with is that a social scientist is the person who counts telephone poles. Um, that's a famous answer to that question. Um, but I want to think about a slightly different definition. Social science, my working definition, is an attempt to explain the causes of complex human behavior under three conditions. One, there's a large number of potential causes. Two, those potential causes are non-independent. Right? If you're a social scientist trying to explain why some kids are juvenile delinquents, and you think the two possibilities are uh, they go to lousy schools and they live in bad neighborhoods, well, those two things aren't independent of each other. right? Kids who go to uh, bad schools also live in bad neighborhoods, and that makes doing the science a lot harder. And three, randomized experimentation is impossible. We can't randomly assign children to good and bad school districts to see what the consequences are for juvenile delinquency. Now, I want to explore uh, what the consequences are of thinking about social science in that way by reviewing very quickly some of my own empirical work uh, uh, in the prediction of behavior. And the first of those is actually just a meta-analysis. Um, a meta-analysis about something called the non-shared environment. Uh, in the old-fashioned classical twin model, uh, probably most of you have seen a diagram like this. Uh, in, a, in a diagram like this, the two little squares on the bottom are like the height of two different twins, the phenotype. And uh, the old-fashioned twin geneticists divided the variation in a phenotype into three components, um, A, C, and E. A being additive genetics, and the A components are correlated one in identical twins and 0.5 in fraternal twins. C, the shared family environment, that is the part of the environment that makes kids raised together in the same family like each other. And E, the so-called non-shared environment, um, which is the part of the environment that makes kids raised in the same family different from each other. I don't want to dwell on this. This is very old-fashioned stuff. But 
A basic finding of behavior genetics is that if you apply this model to pretty much anything, you find a big chunk of genetic variance, and the rest of it is non-shared. The rest of it appears to be stuff that makes kids different when they're raised in the same family. Um, I thought I had a quote in here. There we go. I think I'll go out of order here. Um, and in a very famous paper, the behavior geneticist Robert Plowman conjectured that the reason non-shared environment was so important in twin studies is that it must be that the differential experiences of kids raised in the same family were of profound importance for the development of those kids. Parents treat kids differently. They have different peer groups, whatever. So environmental factors shared by children are unlikely to be important of sources of environmental influence. And therefore, it's the non-shared influences. Uh, we conducted, my student Mary Waldron and I, conducted first just a big meta-analysis of the twin studies. And just across twin studies of child behavior, very, very generally, um, we found, well, just the effect that I described before, that roughly half the variance is generically genetic. Almost none of it is attributable to this shared family. And the other half of it is this non-shared environmental thing. So that 50% over there of the non-shared environment is like the 90% heritability of height. It's the big variance component that's making kids different. And the question is, what are the specific things that are making that effect go? And Plowman, Plowman and Daniels, challenged the field to figure out what those individual things were, to decompose that variance component. They proposed a three-step research program. Step one, quantify the within-family environment, and that's what I just did, half the variance, say. Step two, identify the specific within-family variables. They find the environmental QTLs, right? The specific things that parents do differently to their kids to make the kids different. Three, find the causal associations between within family environment and behavior. How is it that those individual parental behaviors cause the differential outcomes in the kids? And to Pullman and Daniel's credit, this paper launched an entire field of research. Uh, developmental behavior genetics was dominated for 15 years by papers trying to analyze this question. And what Waldron and I did, essentially, was to analyze all the studies that were done that looked at differential environmental events in the family and how strongly they were related to differential outcomes in the kids. So if, if you're a parent and you yell at one kid more than the other kid, uh, is the kid that you yell at more likely to be depressed or a juvenile delinquent? Okay. Uh, we're going to have some slide problems with the different computer. That's really what I just said. Uh, those are details about the studies. They don't matter. Here are the results. Or actually, I like that one better. Um, remember that the non-shared environmental component accounted for roughly 50% of the variance in pretty much anything. When you ask how much of the variance does any individual parental behavior account for, the answer, the median answer is under 2%. If you look at Within families, like the question I just posed, uh, is the question who gets the kid who gets yelled at more more likely to be depressed than the kid who gets yelled at less? The answer is no, not very much. Nothing matters when you look at it this way. So we have exactly the same situation here that we saw with the GWS for height. You have a great big variant com variance component that is obviously composed of something, but when you try and break it down into its individual parts, they dry up and blow away. Um, this is the gloomy prospect that I used in the title of the talk. I've kind of, it, this is, the quote is from Plowman himself. Um, he said, one gloomy prospect is that the salient environment might be unsystematic, idiosyncratic, or serendipitous events, such as accidents, illnesses, or other traumas. Such capricious events, however, are likely to prove a dead end for research. More interesting heuristically are possible systematic sources of differences among families. Uh, this is kind of an argument system that I characterize as 
if A, then B, B is too horrible to comp contemplate, therefore not A. Uh, it's got to be systematic. Okay, a second line of social scientific research that I think has some lessons for us here. Uh, what are the consequences of divorce for children? This is a classic problem in developmental psychology. Uh, psychologists and sociologists have been studying this question for generations. And it's interesting to pause right at the outset and ask yourself, what's hard about, why, why is it that we basically don't know anything about the effects of divorce on children? Well, the bottom, well, the best way to think about it is to think about the old way people did it. You don't want to know about the effects of divorce on kids. You find some families in which mom and dad get divorced and some families in which mom and dad don't get divorced. Compare their kids. And if you find a difference between the kids, bingo, there's your effect of divorce on kids. A lot of studies like that were done. And what's the matter with it? The problem with that is that families are not randomly assigned to divorce conditions. right? They can't be. So therefore, families that get divorced differ in countless ways from families who don't get divorced. Multiple predictors that are non-independent. So divorced families are poorer. Divorced families drink more. Divorced families, you name it. And they're also genetically different, probably. Right? If there are genes that predispose people to alcoholism or impulsivity, or you name it, the divorced families are going to be different genetically than the non-divorced families. Never mind those names I made up there. Um, here's a just a quick diagram of the nature of this relationship. Okay. You're interested over here in the potential causal effect on, I just made something up, substance abuse in kids, because that's actually something we wind up studying. So if your parents get divorced, you're more likely to abuse alcohol when you're a teenager. Well, how do you study that? Well, the problem is that there is, this is an illustration, of a genetic confound of this purported causal relationship. These two things, I'll tell you right now, are correlated with each other. Parents who are divorced have kids who drink more than parents who aren't divorced. But we don't know from that that divorce causes the drinking. Because it might be that there's another pathway, that parental divorce is associated with a genetic predisposition to substance abuse. That parental predisposition is passed on genetically to the kids who express it by drinking. And the hallmark of this explanation is exactly that this effect isn't really causal. right? If you had grabbed these parents before they got divorced and put them in a program to save their marriage and they'd never gotten divorced, it wouldn't have made any difference for the kids under this model because they still would have gotten the exact same genes. So the association, and this is important, is perfectly real. They're associated with each other. The correlation is different than zero, p less than 0.05. But it doesn't imply a causal relationship. Now an interesting thing, once you start thinking this way, I think we in, you know, psychologically minded social scientists often think of as environment, environmental causation as being the desirable alternative to genetic causation. But it's not so simple here because there are also environmental confounds of a potential causal relationship. We have the same association, what we call a phenotypic association down below between parental divorce and substance abuse in kids. Is it causal? Well, no. Because parental divorce is associated with the environmental alternative of poverty. Poverty is associated with more substance abuse in bad neighborhoods. The kids are in the bad neighborhoods, so they, they abuse substances more. So once again, the association is real. The causal inference is not. So we're back to my core definition of social science. The problem in studying the effects of divorce on kids is that you have multiple candidate predictors. This is three out of three million. Those predictors are correlated with each other, and you don't have experimental control. 
and what it's like getting up every morning and being a social scientist is trying to infer something real out of a situation like that, something you can believe in. So what do you do? What have social, sciences, social scientists traditionally done faced with this inferential problem? Well, for one thing, and I'll talk a little bit about it, the whole technology of statistical significance arose. And a lot of you are probably in the routine habit of testing your associations, whatever they may be, to see if they're p less than 0.05 before you publish them. And I'll say a little bit about that. Or there are simple multivariate procedures. You use multiple regression or analysis of covariance uh, to try and decide whether, you know, in the presence of all these background covariations, if this association is more important than that one. Uh, more advanced, if you're an econometrician, you might use something called an instrumental variable approach. I'll say something about that. Um, if you're a multivariate statistician, you might use principal components analysis to try and come up with big dimensions of background competing variables that are potentially contaminating your purported causal effect. Uh, in the modern era, you might use something called propensity score analysis, which is a way of quantifying the different probabilities that kids from divorced and non-divorced families have of being exposed to other confounding variables. Statistical significance, there's, the answer here is so clear that it's, it's almost difficult to talk about. Uh, I don't know how many of you are trained as social scientists or as statisticians in general. Um, but you know, I was raised, and it's, it's really as true today as it ever was, I was raised in an environment where the first thing you do after you compute any, any statistic is to test it to see if it's significant. And psychology journals are, by and large, you know, big tables with stars that things are point le p less than 0.05 and p less than 0.001. Um, and to put a complicated story in a nutshell, the methodology of statistical significance testing has been, I've, in my mind, the greatest failure in the history of science in the last century. It doesn't work. It absolutely does not work. Uh, for a set of reasons that I don't think I'll spend the time on now. Um, the so-called null hypothesis, that is the hypothesis that there's no association between parental divorce and some outcome, is always wrong. It has to be wrong. There's always an association between everything. It's a question of how many participants do you have to collect before you can detect it. You get enough people, everything is significant. Uh, maybe mention that one quick because it's relevant to what comes. A deeper problem is that if we do a test to say that a hypothesis is significant p less than 0.05, that's fine if we only test one hypothesis. But nobody ever only tests one hypothesis. People test dozens if not hundreds of hypotheses in every paper they collect. And each one of them has a probability of being wrong of 5%, but across all of them there's a near certainty that they're wrong. Um, happily, well, happily at least on a theoretical level, the field of psychology anyway and the social sciences more generally have come, have realized what a grave error all this significance testing has been. And I won't bother reading this, but it's from one of psychology's great methodologists, Jacob Cohen, uh, you know, making fun of the way psychology works is that we make the discovery that the earth is round, p less than 0.05. Um, and it's, it's universal. There's nobody left who even defends the practice anymore. Now, for reasons that I'll get into, hopefully, before I'm done, the practice hasn't gone away. But at least on a theoretical level, everybody realizes it doesn't work. Uh, so, given that that doesn't work, how do we discriminate real causal effects from spurious ones? And I'm going to go a little quick here so I finish. Uh, well, maybe you do multiple regression, like I say, and multiple regression has been around since the 1920s. Uh, you know, and it looks at the, the effects of a predictor on an outcome while, quote, controlling for covariates. Now, of course, you can't control for the covariates the right way, which is to use random assignment, so you do it statistically. Uh, and 
multiple regression and analysis of covariance is something that everybody uses all the time. And like all of the things I'm going to talk about, there's nothing the matter with it. It is a mathematically a perfectly sound procedure for doing what it does. But what we've learned is that it doesn't solve the fundamental problem. You can't use multiple regression or analysis of covariance to figure out whether bad schools or bad neighborhoods are what's really causing juvenile delinquency in kids. We've been trying for 100 years. And in some ways, it's better than nothing, but it doesn't work. Um, less familiar is something called an instrumental variable approach, uh, which I don't have time to get into. Instrumental variables, as I said, are very common in econometrics. Um, and the idea here is that you have a purported causal effect in this example between a treatment in this regard, uh, receipt of vitamin A, and an outcome, death during follow-up. And this is supposed to prevent that. But the problem is that, in this example, random assignment fails so that receipt of vitamin A is not at random. There's a probability, an identifiable probability of assignment to variable A. Well, it turns out that if you can identify some potential confounders U that are associated with assignment to treatment, but independent of the outcome, you can use those to estimate this causal relationship independent of the confounders. And that's a long technical story. But it's one of the classical methods of trying to extract cause from non-experimental situations. Or you can do principal components analysis. Principal components analysis, another familiar term for it is factor analysis. It's a variant of factor analysis. It's a solution to the problem that if you're interested in the effects of divorce on children, there are thousands of ways in which divorced families differ from non-divorced families. Uncountable thousands of ways. Uh, so PCA, principal components analysis, is sometimes called data, not a very useful term in fact, but sometimes called data reduction. That we can use PCA in order to identify two or three broad dimensions of ways, poverty, um, poor education, and then use those dimensions of difference, hopefully, to try and control the causal relationship between divorce and outcome. Propensity scores, and I don't think I'm going to waste the time. Propensity scores are another way of doing it, the most modern of the ones I've listed. Uh, you know, Donald Rubin's at Harvard now, uh, and it's if you're in the clinical trials universe, propensity scores are the flavor of the month as a way of getting causal effects. <clears throat> the one I'm interested in are within family designs. Uh, within family designs uses brings us back to twins. Within family designs observes that same relationship, parental divorce and substance abuse in kids and tries to separate out two sets of confounders, genetic factors that predispose to divorce and environmental factors that predispose to divorce. And the way we do this is by using twin parents. We're accustomed to working with twin kids, twin parents. And in the interest of time, um, well, actually, uh, I don't have a good slide for that. Imagine you have a pair of identical twins, twin parents. Mm -hmm. One of them is divorced and the other one is not. Right? So the divorced identical twins' children is, are beating up other kids on the playground. The question now is, what is the non-divorced co-twins' kids doing? If the children of the non-divorced co-twin are also being aggressive on the playground, what does that mean? Well, that means it's not the divorce, right? Because these, these kids' parents weren't divorced. It's the genes that the two parents shared that are getting passed on to the kids. But if the children of the non-divorced co-twin are acting fine on the playground, then it would appear that the difference between the children of the divorced and non-divorced co-twin is actually attributable to the divorce itself. 
a couple of quick studies where we did that. Um, we've actually done a whole series of studies using uh, twin families, twin parents, the so-called children of twins design, in order to examine questions like this. This one was done in Virginia. Uh, we had marital status of the twin parents and psychopathology in the offspring. And the important comparison to look at here are the offspring of discordant identical twins. So these are the kids of identical twins who are discordant for their marital status. So there are two kids in a comparison like that, a kid that came from the intact family and his twin cousin who came from the divorced family. And what you see here is that when you make those comparisons, the children of the divorced co-twin had more lifetime alcohol problems than the children of the non-divorced co-twin. So now we've managed to control for the genetic and environmental background variables in the twins, and we still find a difference in alcohol. On the other hand, for emotional problems and depression, once you control for the background genetics and environment using the twins, there's no difference at all. So we can conclude weakly that the difference in alcohol use in children of divorce seems to survive a, a controlled comparison when genetics are taken into account, but emotional problems do not. Uh, another study of the same phenomenon done in Australia shows similar findings. In the end, I'm summarizing over a lot of modeling here. In the MZ twin families, uh, drug and alcohol use is much higher in the, twin, in the children of the divorced twins than in the children of the non-divorced twins, identical twins in this case. Same for behavioral problems, which means acting out type behavioral problems, delinquency related problems. And in this case, and I'll say more about this at the end, same for internalizing depression type problems. So they all survive the test with the genetic control. So where are we? Traditional social science involves the search for cause under conditions of multiple correlated weak predictors in the absence of experimental control. Statistical significance doesn't work, and statistical methods for coping with it are better than nothing, but they don't really work. Family-based methods are better, but they're not foolproof. Okay, back to hype. Uh, in the conclusion of the, of the first of the three papers in the height issue by Whedon et al., uh, they go over their results that they found 20 SNPs um, that survived some really stringent P-level test. Uh, and uh, they provide further evidence that something called population stratification, which is the last thing I'm going to talk about, is unlikely to have influenced the results. This means that the associations are likely to reflect true biological differences in height, on height. Right, let's read that again. True biological effects on height. And the question is, what in the world does that mean? What's a true biological effect? That's the kind of thing that researchers say, and I read and think, oh good, they're now going to explain to me what the difference is between a true biological effect and a false biological effect, but they never do. Um, what they're talking about in general is this situation in the genome, that there are many potential causes, that is many, many SNPs, all with low correlations with the outcome. Those potential causes are correlated with each other. How can we tell that they're real? Well, we do statistical, use statistical significance and control for population stratification. And my conclusion, which is really the bottom line of this talk, is that in genomics, people are doing social science. Genomics is social science. Very quickly, uh, this is a, a graph that people use nowadays to illustrate the significant, statistical significance of GWAS results. And I, I, I really don't want to say anything specific about it. I just want to say what an enormous irony it is that after 100 years, the social sciences are finally abandoning statistical significance, which has been such a terrible failure 
for our science for the last century. And now we have this new gleaming genomics, which is the greatest science of our era. And what is it? It's a big extended exercise in significance testing. It's like nobody has learned anything. And it's not going to work there any better than it worked for us the first time. Uh, and the reason it's not going to work is because they've done a a mistake has been made about what the null hypothesis is. The null hypothesis, when you do a significance test, is that there is no association between the variant and the outcome. Not that the association between the sequencing, the variant, and the outcome is a true biological process. Statistical significance knows nothing about what a true biological process is. All it does is test an association to see if it's different from zero on the basis of sampling error, period. And the problem isn't sampling error. Uh, I said once, I, I ironically coined something called the first law of behavior genetics, which said that everything is heritable, which it is. If you do a twin study of you name it, it's heritable. And there's a corollary to it. Everything is associated with individual genetic variants. Of course it is. We knew that. right? And just like what I was saying the first time, that doing one more twin study to show that the heritability of conservatism or how much TV you watch or you name it is different than zero, we don't need to do that anymore. We don't need to do more studies to prove again that things are associated with variation in allele. Population stratification. Population stratification after statistical significance is probably the second uh, methodological concern that is attended to in GWAS studies. And populated, the idea is actually older than this, but the, the idea of population stratification goes back to a very famous paper by Dean Hamer and Sirota um, that was called Beware the Chopsticks Gene. <coughs> Most of you are familiar with this idea. Um, the Chopsticks Gene paper said, said that suppose you're looking for the gene that causes people to use chopsticks. You get a big sample of people, which happens to include, though you didn't think about it at the time, half Japanese people and half uh, American people from Cleveland. There happens to be some gene out there having nothing to do with eating that occurs more frequently in Japanese than it does in Americans. Well, the Japanese people eat with chopsticks, the Americans don't. The gene is therefore associated with chopsticks eating, hence the chopsticks gene. Well, that situation got called, in terms of genetic technology, population stratification. The fact that there are multiple populations stratified within your sample that caused this so-called spurious association. Well, what is population stratification? Population stratification is, refers to the test of a causal underpinning of an observed association. You observe an association between your purported chopsticks gene and the use of chopsticks, parental divorce, and drug use in the kids. But, you, but the chopstick gene is correlated with another predictor, that predictor being Japanese ethnic origin. Japanese ethnic origin is associated with J Japanese culture, which is what causes the use of chopsticks. So there's nothing special about population stratification except that it has a fancy genetic name. It's we're also genetic compound. Uh, I've changed my problem here to keep it plausible. You think you have a gene for marital discord that might be causing divorce in people. Well, the gene for marital discord is correlated with another potential predictor, genes for alcohol, which produce alcohol abuse, which causes the divorce. How do we control for population stratification? And I'm going to go fast here so I get done. And guess what? When you look at all the gleaming genetic technologies for controlling for population stratification, they are exactly the old-fashioned sociology statistical technologies that have been used forever to control for multiply correlated predictors. A uh, paper by psychological colleagues of mine calling for the use of Analysis of covariance, God forbid. Um, instrumental variables. 
this is the predominant technology. Involves, uh, going back to a paper by Pritchard and Rosenberg, using unlinked genetic markers. That is, markers that are known to be uncorrelated with the outcome and using them as a way of unconfounding the relationship between the gene of interest and outcome. And underneath, this is instrumental variables applied to genomics. Uh, principal components. Principal components analysis corrects for stratification in genome-wide association studies. Uh, we've been doing principal components analysis in the social sciences for 50 years, and it's a very interesting thing to do, but it doesn't correct for stratification. Propensity scores. They're all appearing again. Finally, within family designs, what's the alternative if you're interested in a relationship between a potential gene and a potential causal gene and a potential outcome is to do it within families. And the two predominant methodologies are affected SIDPAIR designs. So if you think you have a gene for depression, you compare a pair of siblings, one of whom is depressed and the other one is not, and ask whether the difference in depression status corresponds to a difference in genetic status whether they're identical by descent. And that's the exact analog of our twin studies. You're control, quote, controlling for population stratification by comparing people who come, by definition, from the same population, just like the identical twins who are discordant for marital status. When people write about this, this is going out of fashion in the GWAS world now. Why? Because it costs too much to do SIB design. You can't do 600,000 siblings. But instead, you know, let's, instead of using the good controls, the good sibling controls, let's just get more and more and more and more population people to conduct GWAS. Uh, in fact, it's worse than this. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, I on purpose went fast so nobody could ask a question. But uh, when I was talking about our two little uh, divorce and outcome, the two studies we conducted of depression came out in different ways. In one of them, depression did seem to be associated with divorce, and in the other one, depression wasn't associated with divorce. And if you do social science, it's the kind of thing that doesn't bother you because nobody really expects to get consistent findings of this kind anyway. We know better, right? What do we know? We know that whether divorce makes you depressed depends on a million other things. It's not like anybody's ever going to discover the first law of divorce, that it does or doesn't cause divorce, uh, depression. We know this. We're used to it. Um, it's what I call a spinach and ice cream question, uh, borrowing from Gregory Bateson, uh, about a mother who rewards a child for eating a spinach by giving them a bowl of ice cream. Does that child grow up to love or hate spinach, love or hate ice cream, or love or hate his mother? <laughs> and of course, Bateson's point was we don't know. We can't know. Right? Because it always is going to depend on the context in which it happens. By way of conclusion, when there are many correlated interacting causes, the very notion of systematic risk factors for an outcome begins to break down. There, we are never, ever, ever going to make a list of all the factors in the neighborhood that make a kid likely to be a juvenile delinquent. Nobody would even think that anymore. Like I say, we know better, but we're still trying in the genome. Uh, that's a great quote from the founders of behavior genetics, but never mind. So. Why do we keep doing significance testing? I think this is a very, very important point. And those of you who are working scientists out there know that we keep doing it. The, here's why, I think. Spinach and ice cream questions don't have answers. There is no answer to the question, Do does parental divorce cause depression in children? Therefore, most of us, when we study questions like that, myself included, are spinning our wheels. Significance testing allows us to believe that the core problem is whether our associations are different from zero because of sampling error. That's not the problem, but it allows us to believe it. And that makes us feel better about what we get up in the morning and do every day. 
because we don't have to worry about the fact that the results come out one way in one study and another way in another study. Uh, another conclusion, heritability and GWAS and molecular genetics in general, in my view, don't have anything to do with each other. Uh, this is a quote, one of my favorite quotes from a former colleague of yours, Neil Risch, one of the absolute world leaders in this topic, in which he shows, I won't bother reading the quote with five minutes left, but that to, this is, it's, I highly recommend reading this paper. What he shows is that in cancer genetics, there is an inverse relationship between the heritability of cancer and the success that the gene finders have had in finding the genes for the cancer. The most heritable cancers have been a washout as far as finding the genes. The, the cancers that are hardly heritable at all because they're very rare, they have found the genes. Uh, the correct hypothesis when we do something like this are there associations between genetic variants and outcomes? Of course there are. There have to be. There are no true positives. There are no biological effects. There are no spurious associations or anything like that. There are only associations. And absent other information, there are no genes for anything. Any more than there are environments for juvenile delinquency. Back to height. An important conclusion for those of you, some of you out there, who are predisposed to doubt the importance of genetics for important outcomes, some people are like that, some people are not, is to remember that none of this, none of all this skepticism that I've expressed adds up to genes are unimportant for the development of human beings. I mean, that could hardly be true, and it's not, right? Is height genetic? Well. I'm no lover of calling things genetic, but of course it is. You wouldn't want to conclude because we can only explain 3% of the variation in height uh, with GWAS that genes don't have anything to do with height, right? Of course they do. But are there identifiable genetic mechanisms that regulate height? Probably not. Finally, and then I'll, I'll shut up. Uh, all this kind of thinking, I think, gives us good tools to think about what's coming in the future. It's right down the pike. In fact, it's here right now, which is that the two paradigms I've talked about are going to intersect. Okay? We've had geneticists looking for the genes for depression and schizophrenia. We've had social scientists trying to understand how divorce affects families and outcomes in children. Well, just last month, it finally happened study links gene variant in men to marital discord. It's coming. And we need a good conceptual set of tools to understand why this would be true, A, and B, why in the long run it's not going to tell us anything important about the nature of divorce or marital discord. Uh, and I won't read that to you. That's just another quote from the old days arguing that all this was going to happen. And I'll leave you with that thought. Thanks very much. I think we do have time for a couple of questions. Oh, good. If you could. Yes, of course. Yes, please. So, have any of the consumer genetics companies been in your audience? And what do they have to say about this? Uh, not that I know of. I don't know if there are any here now. Um, because I know this is actually a center for that. I, I mean, the answer specifically to your question is I don't know. Uh, I, I think it goes without saying that the products sold by the consumer genetics companies, even the best intention, of, and I don't doubt their good intentions, is really oversold. I, I, don't, I don't see how it could possibly be otherwise. Um, and well, we've been talking about this among ourselves this morning. I think it's, it's oversold in a very specific way. That you know, to the extent we find a gene for uh, macular degeneration, that's a really important thing for people to know, and they're going to want to know it, and they're going to be things to do. But when the time comes that we happen to know that there are a couple of QTLs that increase the chances that a kid is going to be depressed by a couple of percent, what is that going to mean? I mean, I really worry. What? Even if, I mean, there are a lot of complications to even believing that's true, but even if you believe it's true, what are parents going to do with that information? It's, that's a very different thing than knowing that you have a gene that has some kind of direct causal pathway 
to blindness when you're 60 years old. Uh, so, I mean, I, I worry a lot about it. And it's, you know, I've, I've spent an hour here trying to think hard about it and just scratch the surface. And, you know, anybody who spends any time with this knows that it, people, it's just such an easy thing to think badly about. Uh, so I worry about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what's the principle Maybe a difference between you and Mark, me, Mark, but I, I'm willing to accept that. I mean, I I would agree with you that getting all compulsive about worrying about whether the heritability of something is 0.4 or 0.6 on the basis of assumptions about identical twins being exactly twice as similar as DZ twins is a mistake, and that a lot of time has been wasted doing things like that. But in the context of doing your best to conduct social science, it the way you said it, that the children of identical twin pairs are more genetically similar to each other than the children of fraternal twin pairs in kind of an ordinal sense, that seems pretty good. And I'm, I think I'm more confident in saying that than I am in saying talking about a lot of the causal models that we carry around in social science. So, you know, my view of the role of twin studies is that it's not the way people used to think about them, that they're this kind of miraculous, just like GWAS today, this kind of miraculous genetic technology that is going to save social science from its own precision, old imprecision, but it's one more tool in the toolbox. It's, you can do better studies of divorce with twins than you can without twins. And I think how you look at it it's like, well, how close have you actually gotten to a goal when you're done? And I, I sort of go back and forth on that. Yeah? I'm an economist, so maybe uh -huh. I'm Actually, at some places where it's what you call a schematic variable, saying and I, I, I agree that I was oversimplifying there let me let me be clear about what my point was um, like I say I, I do these kind of studies every day and these kind of statistical methods do have value and they they do help us isolate cause I think our experience as social sciences scientists has told us they don't always do it very well but they're better than nothing but the contrast with uh, when, when you read the genetics literature, the, the modern genetics literature, it's not written as though, well, we have a very difficult situation here. 
We don't have any experimental control over all these genes. They're all correlated with each other. And, well, we don't really know what to do, but there are instrumental variable methods, and maybe we can use that to extract something. It's not. It, they are written in terms of, there used to be a problem with something called population stratification, but fortunately, we now have this method from Pritchard, and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, that it's, it's treated as an aspect of genetic technology, not as a statistical exercise that you can do to make a difficult situation a little bit better. And so that, that's, that's my point, that, that what we're doing here is social science. And we're doing social science with genes, but we're doing social science. And, and whatever lesson you want to take out of how social science has done for the last hundred years, that's the lesson to take. I'm confused by your height examples. So okay. Your height example seems to me that you know the answer is it's 90% genetics. And that mm -hmm. your technology or your method is only find 2 or 3% of the variance. Right. So why are you gloomy? It means that it means that the answer is that it's rear variance or copy number variance. If I don't the answer think is it's a lot of genes, not just two. Or it's a different way of thinking, and not one gene at a time, but maybe some other combination of genes where you can't handle it as individual genes that add up like that. But somehow, whatever, the organism knows from the DNA sequence how high it is. That must mean that if you knew the DNA sequence, you would know the height no, with this 90%. Mean. It certainty. doesn't mean that. I don't understand why. If you knew the DNA cool. sequence and knew every possible way that the DNA sequence could combine with the individual variants in the sequence, right. and with all the environments no, that, no environments. well, except that geno genotype environment interaction is getting wound up. Hmm? You said 90%. It's 90%. That's what the DNA sequence gives you. Okay, so if I, you knew how to think about it, and you had the data. But that's my point, is that we don't know how to think about it. But that, that just means you have to think about it. No, well, <laughs> yeah, well, now I'm standing here trying to think about it. What you don't need to do is to do an even more giant study so that you can get down past the genes that in an additive model that doesn't fit the data, that you can get down to the genes that account for half a percent of the variance, you can get down to ones that account for 50% of the variance. Well, that, it seems to me that's one of the three possibilities, that there's really 500 genes. To get to 90%, you have to use 500 genes. But well, there are other possibilities too, like it's not the half map SNPs that you're looking at. It could be something you're completely missing and that you just need a different assay and you'll be able to see what it is that the organism sees in the DNA sequence. You know the answer is 90%. Right. So, well, and that, that's so if obviously, you were smart that's and you the, had the data, you would know the answer. Well, if you're smart enough and I, yeah, yes. Even though we're 100%, we know in four generations in Japan, non-genetic factors caused a huge change in height. Okay. I agree, but I, I still don't think that's the point. There could, here, be, a, here, there could be huge environments, but we know that identical twins <coughs> tend to have the same height. So you must be able to predict the same, 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 same height. Same height, same environment. Separated okay. identical twins are, are close to point eight. So that doesn't matter. I mean, I agree with you about that. But you can think of identical, I think of identical twins and an identical twin as being a computing engine over the genome. Okay, if I have an identical twin right. and you want to compute over the genome to figure out how tall I'm going to be, right. a twin will do it. Right. Um, but it doesn't follow from that that uh, we are eventually going to be able to specify the individual events that are adding together. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And I mean, I suppose you can, you can always say in principle that I mean. I mean, it's theoretically possible to get to 90%. Well, it's theoretically possible, right, but it ain't happening. You know, right. when, when you look at the effect sizes of the genes coming out of that study, they're distributed like that. And right. by the time you get down where they've decided to cut it off, you have genes that by any standard are accounting for a minuscule right. proportion so of the variance. So fail on that. So forget more genes. Maybe it's different, maybe it's copy number variance that is doing it. Just get new data. Or get a new algorithm 
instead of adding them up, you know, as if they're completely independent building blocks. You know, maybe somebody has to come up with a different, but the potential is there to get 90%. I, I agree with that. But I just think the, we're nowhere close to understanding what, the, I mean, it's right. more than just now, some new method. To, There's a paradigm shift in sure. between yes. here and where we need to be. And, no, and really what I think is that, if anything, what we need is an end of phenotype, right? That we, I don't really think it's ever going to be adding or multiplying or raising to the some power a bunch of individual genes. It's maybe we're gonna identify some intermediate biological mechanism that seems to have some meaningful relationship to height on the complex side and then a meaningful relation to a genetic system on the lower end, and the system will make sense when we can relate the genes to height through that intermediate mechanism. Uh, I mean, if anything is ever going to work, I think it's going to be something like that. That has turned out to be much harder than anybody ever thought. Well, I think we have run out of time, but as promised. <laughs>The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.